Good morning, everyone, and thank you for tuning in today. We have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. John Driesbert, the Chief Medical Staff Officer at Margaret Mary Health. How are you today, sir? So far, so good. Thanks. Uh, every day I wake up and no fever, no cough. It's a good day. Give thanks and carry on. So, But so far, good. Thanks. That is important. And a good segue, of course, we'll be talking about COVID-19 and, mm-hmm. and how it affects uh, southeastern Indiana. As a medical person, what kind of personal checks do you do to make sure you're safe every day? Oh, that's a very good question. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, absence of fever, absence of cough, and before um, I start work, myself and the rest of the medical staff, top down, you know, we have our temperatures uh, taken and, you know, they're recorded. And as far as patient contact, I wear a respirator, uh, one, of, one of those N95 masks. And, you know, there's other protective gear that we wear. Depending on, on what we're doing, some medical staff, of course, have to obtain uh, test samples, right, these swabs, and they have to wear pretty much what looks like a hazmat suit. For, is this... A, a new kind of way to practice medicine for a lot of your coworkers, and maybe for yourself. Oh my goodness, sure. I mean, I never thought we'd have to wear respirators and rubber gloves to examine a patient, right? Um, and there are some tech uh, changes too, which I'm actually embracing and, and quite enjoy, which is a telehealth that we're utilizing uh, increasingly at the uh, primary school. It's wonderful to be able to actually hear someone's heart, hear someone's lungs uh, remotely and uh, you know, examine the patient, talk to the patient, make visual contact with that person, and, and come up with a game plan about, you know, how to get through what they're dealing with at the time, whether it be the flu, which we still have here, or did it look more suspicious for, you know, a COVID infection. You did mention the telehealth service through the elementary school. What kind of a patient should think, maybe I need to go there? Well, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. The primary school is geared, um, it's kind of like a triage center. So obviously if a patient is quite sick, whether it be from something suspected to be COVID or something else, for instance, if someone has chest pain, which they think is heart, you know, because they go straight to the ER, or if someone has a regular appointment with their um, doctor um, for diabetes or congestive heart failure or high blood pressure follow-up, then they would go there. But what we're trying to do with the uh, primary school is have a center for folks who are concerned about the possibility of COVID. So maybe they have a fever associated with another symptom, cough, shortness of breath. They're the ones who we very much would like to see, and earlier rather than later. Access is simple. You, you call the number of the hotline. I believe it's 933-5556, and it's reserved for patients who are currently being seen by Mark and Mary physicians. So an appointment is scheduled, and uh, they show up. We measure their oxygen saturation. Some, sadly, some people who arrive, you know, are below a threshold, which is usually 90%, and then they go to the ER for more definitive care. When they arrive at their primary school, we, we examine them for flu. Um, surprisingly, late in the season, we're still seeing flu A uh, and flu B and had a positive yesterday, which is odd because, you know, one, it's late in the season, but two, yeah. when, when you see a positive flu, it's like a cause for celebration, you um, <laughs> <laughs> which is very odd. Right, um, right. And so, so basically, folks who who should make an appointment are patients, members of the community who are concerned that they're running a fever and have cough, shortness of breath. And we very much would like to see those patients to evaluate them early to see if we can alter the course of this, which we can in, in many instances. What kind of symptoms are you seeing with your patients or with um, throughout all the patients in the hospital? 
Oh, gosh. So the ones that are in the hospital who tend to struggle the most are respiratory, right? So mm-hmm. basically the normal ventilation function of the lung becomes impaired and they need a bit of assistance, whether it be with supplemental oxygen or, in the worst-case scenario, you know, artificial ventilation. Um, but we're seeing a whole host uh, of symptoms. This is like a chameleon. Um, we see folks who have um, digestive symptoms. I suspect those are um, citizens who maybe ingest a few virus particles, and so they get the, you know, almost like food poisoning-like syndrome of the, the diarrhea and that sort of thing. Oh. But basically, it, it can masquerade. I mean, this is uh, very much a chameleon. It's, there's no classic pattern which is a bit of a frustration because in the past when there are outbreaks, you know, there are oftentimes clues that are left, which sadly are absent uh, in this case. Uh, For instance, you know, sometimes we can see um, a rash that identifies that someone's battling chickenpox or, you know, uh, other infections. Sometimes we can see physical signs of involvement. Think of mumps when you have a swollen cheek or limp um, in polio back in the day. And some patients display symptoms so rapidly and so visibly uh, floridly, like in Ebola, it's very easy to identify, you know, who has got this infection. But with the COVID, the majority of folks have no symptoms at all. Um, that's why we're, you know, kind of struggling early on. We're, I think we're getting a bit of a handle on it right now more. But uh, yeah, it presents in a, no classic pattern, no classic sign that we can identify. But the folks who tend to get into the biggest trouble are the ones who have more breathing problems. If you think you're sick or a family member is sick, what should they do? Well, it depends on the symptoms. But first off, um, I would definitely recommend uh, reaching out to, you know, the hotline. Um, They're wonderful at giving advice and directing what to do. Also, I would recommend, uh, you know, checking good, reliable sites for advice. The CDC has wonderful um, user-friendly advice uh, options um, that kind of detail what to look for, what to do with respect to how to conduct yourself at home. Um, On that website um, is the uh, coronavirus guidelines. Uh, As far as, you know, um, the physical distancing um, and hygiene measures that are super important during this time, the social but, distancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You, you kind of mentioned something about you're still seeing flu A. How does a person, I mean, can a person really know whether they have flu A or possibly COVID? Are, are there similar, similar symptoms to the two? They often mimic each other. Um, that's the, one of the challenges, which is why any patient that, you know, arrives at the primary school um, site is immediately tested for flu, and hopefully that will, you know, be less often um, tested. But right now, since it is still prevalent, um, we test that first, and then if that's negative, then we go down a different algorithm, uh, exploring the possibility of COVID. Now there are people who, you may have a regular bacterial pneumonia, and so you know we deal with it there um, as well. With social distancing, should we see the other viruses and stuff kind of fall to the wayside anytime soon? The other viruses? Sure. Yeah. Um, so so the, the advantage of social distancing is basically you're, you're separating the and reducing the risk of transmission. In the case of COVID and many other viruses, they're airborne, right? So 
uh, it's really important to, to follow the guidelines as much as possible, avoiding crowds, that sort of thing, especially as we get close to allergy season. Um, you know, the propellant force of a sneeze is far greater than just a cough. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, someone who is infected and sneezes inadvertently can certainly um, infect uh, a number of people. Absolutely. So, you know, the, yeah, these guidelines, you know, they're incredibly beneficial, um, but I think some people look at it as perhaps too simplistic, which is a concern because, you know, if you think, oh, this is really not going to make a difference, then you're less likely to adhere to those uh, recommendations. But uh, they make a great uh, difference as far as, you know, flattening the curve. Anybody who's on social media right now or listening to the news, um, they're hearing a lot about southeastern Indiana and, and the numbers mm-hmm. that we have per capita. In your opinion, why do you think that this is hitting us, in their words, I'll say, much harder than other areas? Uh, another good question. Um, uh, probably at the end of the day, it will be left to the epidemiologist to, uh, to sort this out. Um, I'm not sure. There may be a number of factors. I think we're probably testing more aggressively than others. Um, again, um, so that, that could definitely be a factor. And, you know, we have factories here. There's a lot of trucking, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think there's, I don't think there's one definitive factor. And as time plays out, we might find surrounding counties, you know, uh, surpass us. We don't know. I mean, it's, it's still early in the process. It seems like there's almost, I think I see the word fear used a lot. Should people be scared to be out, to be to, to never be able to go out, any of those factors? The concern, um, perhaps fear, is, is understandable. But, you know, I think there are some positives here which are, are not getting a whole lot of play. And hopefully, you know, we can apply some of these thoughts. For instance, we are... We have some definite advantages which favor our progress compared to, you know, what you're seeing on the news with respect to larger cities, whether it be, you know, New York City or um, New Orleans. Some factors in our favor include, you know, we have a much more favorable population density. It's much easier to separate. Also, mm-hmm. we have a, a much less germ density. So citizens here aren't spending a whole lot of time in elevators or public transportation, subways, and and such, which are just covered, um, you know, with germs. And we have a very hygienic community. So, I I mean, one of the risk factors is, you know, the homeless population, which in cities is much more prevalent than in rural communities. Um, And another hopeful note, like we're seeing already patients who have tested positive, who've gone through this illness, you know, flu-like symptoms, and have emerged on the other side, and they look great. And, And that's something, you know, I think needs to be, said more frequently is, you know, the majority of people who have this, who contract this virus, will, um, you know, suffer very few symptoms and maybe even no symptoms. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that I think we should be uh, a source of hope is our hospitals have been very aggressive, very proactive from the get-go. And um, I think we're starting to apply interventions um, that should make a difference um, for many of these people. That brings up a good question. How is Mar- Margaret Mary House prepared for all of this in case maybe things like the governor is planning for could get worse before it gets better? So right now there is essentially a command center. If you look at pictures of the White House sometimes in time of crisis when they have this big table and there's people all around um, and they're just, you know, uh, problem shooting and coming up with great 
solutions. That's happening on a daily basis from you know the CEO, Mr. Putnam, on down to, to the senior management team. A lot of interaction, of course, with physicians and community members. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of contingency plans um, going on. We're reaching out uh, to other specialists to help with uh, hospital management, uh, perhaps with some of the sicker patients. We have an excellent ER. We have a leader there who has FEMA experience. Um, so it's a day-by-day adjustment, kind of, you know, what's the reality on the ground? What do we need to um, to, to do differently to uh, maximize care? I think the early outreach with the, um, you know, the school corporation was a huge win um, mm-hmm. with the primary school just because, you know, we're, we're trying to utilize that to decrease uh, ER visits because there are patients who ordinarily would go to the ER that we can uh, evaluate and treat at the primary school and thereby uh, allow the ER to really focus on the sickest patients, whether they can be you know, treated here or, or transferred. Absolutely. Well, we are beyond grateful as a community of how prepared Margaret Mary Health is definitely in keeping us um, ready to treat us if necessary. Speaking with Dr. John Griefer, the Chief Medical Staff Officer at Margaret Mary Health, what could the community do to stay safe? Or what could the community do to better stay safe that they already maybe aren't doing? So uh, I think our community is really rallying around um, these guidelines um, from the government, you know, and if you look carefully, I got one in the mail, I'm sure many who are listening got one in the mail too, it looks like a little postcard, but in the top left it says slow the spread, it didn't. It does not say stop the spread, so sure. you know, we just have to realize that it's here, um, but, but if we could follow those guidelines as simplistic as they sound, they'll make a huge difference. And I will also say please, I know it's tempting to know, you know, gosh, do I have this or do I not, and there's an urgency to, you know, to be tested. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I do want to, if you don't mind, speak a little bit about the importance of very uh, strategic testing. Yes. Yeah. So you don't hear a lot of about false positives, and that's because the testing that's out there is very reliable. If you have this illness and the test says you have it, you can pretty much bank that it is 100% accurate. There are, essentially, we're figuring no false positives. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some concern about the false negative rate, which varies on, depending on, on what source. But let's say it's around 20%, give or take a little bit. Well, part of that reason is people who are asymptomatic or have very minimal symptoms may be getting them you know, test elsewhere, not through our hospital. And that's a concern because this test has to sample a certain amount of genetic material that the virus sheds in the nose. And early on in the disease, there may be not enough to trip the test to become positive. Kind of like if you think of a pregnancy test. If, if someone is just a little bit late from their normal cycle to get a pregnancy test, yeah, it's not, it's not positive. That's not the fault of the test. That's the fault of, hey, maybe there's a, a problem with timing here. Let's give it a couple of days and retest. Well, if we had an abundant supply of these tests, we could do that, but we don't. Right. So, um, I, my biggest fear, one of my biggest fears, is that people are, you know, getting off-site testing with few or no symptoms, think they're negative because the test says they're negative, 
and yet they very well, very well may be positive and therefore don't adhere to the guidelines and therefore endanger others. Yeah, that would be, I think, maybe a fear someone hasn't recognized yet. So even advice for those people, clearly they went to a doctor for someone or because they weren't feeling right, because you, you can't be tested if you feel fine, right? It's not recommended. I mean, I think there may be some outlets that are fine to test whoever has basically a pulse, but not recommended. And the guidelines, if even if you have, if somebody has a negative, you, they still have some guidelines on when they should maybe when it would be safe to re-enter the public. Correct. Well, exactly. Um, sadly, the turnaround time for some of these tests can be you know, over ten days. And right. so if someone, if someone is manifesting the symptoms of fever, cough, um, shortness of breath, muscle aches, joint aches, not otherwise explainable by flu or some other illness, you have to assume that that person in today's environment has it. Mm-hmm. And so you treat them as if they are positive you know, with the quarantine measures that are you know, um, outlined or the home shelter measurements, I like that term better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you just, you just assume that you're positive um, and until you get you know, past that uh, guideline of mainly 72 hours without fever and uh, up to 14 days from initial symptom onset. We've definitely given us a lot of good information today, uh, Dr. Grispert. Is there anything else you'd like the community to know before we wrap up? Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I think, you know, some take-home messages, you know, please uh, focus on optimizing your lung status. The, the more you can do for your lung ventilation function, that is stay active, don't become a couch potato, you know, get 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the evening of good physical activity, that really helps a lot the lungs because, again, as we talked about earlier, the patients who are going to have the most difficult time are the ones who have a chest infection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anything you can do to improve your odds of staying at home and being um, taking care of yourself physically uh, that would be helpful. I can't stress enough. Um, if you have fever, cough, shortness of breath, please call the uh, hotline, the 9333 number 5566. Focus on reliable sources. I prefer the CDC site. Um, of course, Indiana, Ohio have good state sites. Um, the, White ha- uh, the White House briefings are, I find, very informative. And then our own website, I've got to put a plug in for Margaret Mary. Um, <laughs> so uh, they have a wonderful um, site as well. Try if you can, especially as you're sheltered at home, to support the local businesses, you know, the restaurants. Give a shout-out to uh, grocery store workers. I think they're the unsung heroes here. And a couple more things. If, if you're stuck at home want to read something, there's a book written locally um, called The Savior. It's uh, true stories uh, from the Korean War, which I find very inspirational. And because, uh, you know, if we can get through this. We just have to have... a a really good resolve, and I know it sucks. It's going to suck to you know, be sheltered at home uh, <clears throat> for another month or so. Um, I mean, that's going to drive some people a little bit batty, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are, there, I guess that's one pause with social media. There are a lot of funny videos going around right now that people are sharing, which is <laughs> good for laugh and laughter is helpful. Absolutely. And I guess, I guess finally just know that a lot of your staff, you know, we're, we're looking for guidance, um, you know, from above, we're reading Psalm uh, 91 frequently in a couple of verses in Psalm 94, verse 18 and 19. And, uh, yeah. 
And then at some point, uh, if you, whatever it would like, I would love to talk to you about, you know, there's a lot of information there about, you know, how do we treat this? Why are uh, antibiotics prescribed for a viral infection? Why are antimalarials prescribed for a viral infection? Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that because we've heard about the, both of those in the in news and that they're working well together. Right. So just as a background, um, you know, there are four main germs that cause infections. Of course, bacteria, um, such as strep throat, are treated with antibiotics like penicillin. The second class, uh, viruses are treated with antivirals. Think of flu and treated with Tamiflu. The third class are fungal infections, which are treated with antifungals. They can be as simple as a diaper rash, which is treated with a cream, or histoplasmosis, which is treated with a pill. And the fourth um, uh, class would be the parasitic infections, which are treated with the antiparasitics. Think of pinworm, tapeworm. Those are examples of common parasites that many of us may have experienced. And then, of course, malaria, which is in the news now, is a parasite that infects the red blood cells. And what we're finding is if you can use antibiotics early on, of course, for select patients, they do very well because many patients, not even knowing, are battling a bacterial infection in addition to the COVID. And so their immune system is kind of overwhelmed, at least temporarily. And that's one of the, um, the items that we can address at the primary school. There's testing we can do um, to, that can identify pneumonia early on. We do a sputum sample, a blood test sometimes, and it really is helpful. And so patients who are battling COVID plus bacterial infection, you know, can benefit from early antibiotic intervention. With respect to the antimalarials, you probably heard that the FDA has improved uh, Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine for inpatient use. It's a complex mechanism, but it seems to work in that it handcuffs the COVID virus, if you will, and prevents it from roaming around and causing havoc in the lungs. And it's a process where the virus is basically stopped in its tracks. It's not killed, it's just basically restrained. Then the immune system can identify it, you know, formulate um, antibodies, and then fire um, those antibodies. They're kind of like bullets, basically, um, to the virus and, and get rid of it. And so, it, you know, early intervention in, in the right patient uh, with Plaquenil is thought to uh, help in that manner. So it's still controversial. It's not for everybody, obviously. Sure. But uh, a five-day course can make a big difference. Is the hydrochloroquine, is that being used in patients um, that are at home trying to recover from the illness? In, in a few cases, locally, yes. In, in many cases, I suspect nationally. Um, but an inpatient is used in Cincinnati and, and uh, also in our hospital. Um, last week it was used um, so, again, we're just trying to be aggressive as possible, do no harm, but, you know, be very, very aggressive. And, um, yeah. Can I add one more uh, comment, just something to take home? Yes, please do. So one of the reasons why um, the social distancing is, is so important is the concept that this virus is airborne, it's everywhere. And what we're trying to do, we don't get a whole lot of play on this, is, is try to reduce a person's viral load. That is basically the dose of the germ that they're exposed to. We're all going to be likely exposed to this, and hopefully the vast majority are going to be suffering no more than cold symptoms. But if you were to obtain a large sneeze directly to you, especially in an allergy season, that can be a, a huge direct hit, and that can be overwhelming for the immune system. So that's where the distancing comes in. I try to think of, you know, if you're 
with a buddy and um, you accidentally get, you know, shot with a BB, well, yeah, that's painful, but, you know, you're going to be okay. Right. But the story is different if that load is a 44 Magnum. You know, yeah, you'll get over that likely as well, but it's a lot longer recovery. Um, And so that's, you know, that's the whole impetus with the, the, the guidelines is to minimize the amount of exposure um, to the virus that we would obtain um, without these guidelines. So it's not just a bunch of powerful people saying, hey, we don't want you, anybody hugging anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I mean, this could be a little bit of a long process, so please hug your spouse. I think things will go better if you do that. Right. Um, assume, assume, you know, assuming that the other spouse is not feverish. And then, you know, with, with the whole load thing, I mean, there are young people who are going to do not as well as some of the older people just because of some silly choices. I mean, if you decide to, I think on social media there have these weird challenges like licking toilet seats and that sort of thing. Uh, that is not recommended, right? I mean, right. <laughs> so that, um, that doesn't sound good on a normal basis. Kids don't no. use phones. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, and please don't. Yeah, yeah. Just be careful with uh, partners that have a fever and a cough. I mean, just just be careful. Great advice, and that's a great spot to end on. And we definitely thank you for talking with us today. And don't be a stranger. We probably would love to hear some updates from you here in the future. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you for asking. And, uh, you know, this is a wonderful community. We've been here 25 years and counting, and I think things are going to go well.